What if your faith in your science didn't have to be in a big fight? You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 288, Marjorie Gano and Integrating Faith and Science. Welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I am so excited that you're here. Thank you for downloading. I'm curious how you found the show. Are you a longtime listener? Are you just discovering it? I think either way, you're going to have a great time listening to this episode, whatever you're doing, doing the dishes, driving, uh, just hanging out. That's great. Thanks. Thanks for uh, coming along. And if you do enjoy it, go ahead. Uh, you know, share it, share it with a friend, post it on social. Let me know, tag me. I'd love that. All right. We have a great conversation today. I can't wait to just dive straight into it. Our guest, she's a professor at Calvin. She's a professor at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Marjorie Gano. Marjorie, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you, Eric. Glad to be here. I, I'm so excited to, to talk with you. You have an interesting book coming out or it'll be out soon, I think, when this comes out, uh, called The Person in Psychology and Christianity. That sounds like a really fascinating topic. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we wouldn't have written a, written a book right. about it. Uh, we, we'll get into all kind of where, where that comes from, but... Uh, Tell us a little more about, you know, obviously it, you're way more than a professor, you're way more than a writer. Tell us a little bit more about kind of who you are and where God has you right now. I am a professor of psychology. I am a developmental psychologist. So I teach classes like lifespan development and youth faith formation, uh, last called Children at Risk. Mm. I have uh, three adult children. Uh, you know, let's put adult in quotes. They're in that stage <laughs> where they kind of are moving into adulthood. Uh, my husband is also a professor of history. Uh, we both come from pretty conservative backgrounds, but together I would say we have grown to, you know, ask a lot of questions to figure out who we are. Um, and so this book that we're going to get to in a bit is really the product of me finally being able to ask some questions where I would say I try to integrate my theological beliefs with my psychological scientific knowledge rather than just you know compartmentalize those things in two parts of my brain and don't don't wrestle with the difficulties yes okay see that's right there even a very interesting developmental piece right that right. I love the way you frame that <laughs> because the permission to ask those questions and to integrate those things i think is a huge part of how we become mature believers exactly Yes. Oh, 100%. Okay. I can't wait. We'll get into that. I want to okay. know some of your background and how you got there. So sure. uh, you're in Michigan now, but did you grow up there? Where are you from? Um, I grew up largely in Michigan. Uh, let's just leave it at that. I don't have the most okay. stable childhood. I lived 11 places by the time I was 12, but most of those were in wow. Michigan. Um, so yeah, so um, I was born in Michigan into a uh, quite conservative fundamentalist family. Lots of um, professional ministers, well, you know, missionaries, church workers on both sides. I was um, prayed the sinner's prayer when I was four to avoid hell fire. Uh, at, uh, at six, I was my grandfather was giving a vacation Bible school out of my home. 
and um, people would raise their hand to be saved and go back to my bedroom and get saved and then come out with candy. Uh, and so I realized, like, wait, where's the candy? Where's the candy? So yeah, I, you know, you can tell this troubles me because I still remember it, but at six, I raised my hand again to be saved and went back and was saved, you know, delighted my grandfather and got candy. Uh, but clearly it, 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 you know, troubles my righteous soul to know that that was a bit duplicitous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and so, uh, then at seven, um, Often when one grows up in a pretty fundamentalist family, um, that will include a lot of uh, pretty rigid gender hierarchy kinds of situations. Mm -hmm. uh, and at seven, my mom decided that um, the heavy handedness in our family was really kind of taking too much toll on her and my sister and I. Uh, so she did leave my dad, uh, but she enrolled me in a uh, elementary school that is associated with the Christian reform tradition. Oh yeah. So I pretty much grew up in with one foot in a very conservative brethren tradition and one foot in the Christian reform theology. And this was, I guess, okay. Uh, until ninth grade when I raised my hand in class and made a comment about the rapture and nobody in my class had any idea what I was talking about. So the teacher had to explain. He was a wonderful, sympathetic teacher, uh, had to explain. Uh, but at that point, one of the uh, one the person that I would really have considered one of my close friends, you know, made some comment about this being stupid theology. Uh, and so I think at ninth in ninth grade, mm. I was really then pushed to say, oh, even though we're all Christians, these theological questions matter. And I'm going to have to figure out, you know, where I come down on, you know, many of these doctrinal issues. Um, yeah. Fascinating. So a couple of observations. Yeah, one, sure. obviously you, you already uh, were a question asker, right? Like this is, you were like, Hey, wait, what, <laughs> what about this? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously I'm a question asker, but I also think I am a lot, um, a little bit a, a product of being pushed emotionally as well. So, mm. uh, so, you know, just a year or two after that, um, my mother, when she returned us to, uh, when she left my dad and she took us basically back to the conservative church that she had grown up in. Um, and at that point, uh, she began working with the youth group, but my mom was in kind of a, um, a little bit, I guess, of an ambiguous situation. She tries very hard to follow scripture. And because scripture says that if a woman leaves her husband, she should remain, you know, separated. Uh, so she actually did that. She was legally separated, wow. but not divorced. And this really kind of caused some um, I guess, difficulty for some people in the church. She wasn't clearly under the authority of her husband, but she wasn't clearly under the authority of anybody else. She had this, I mean, her following scripture left her legally separated. And so someone complained and um, she was actually asked to not work with the youth group anymore. Uh, and so apparently at that point, I said, I will never set foot in that church again. And so my mom realizing that if she didn't want to lose me to Christianity broadly, she needed to move me to another denomination. Um, you know, I think it was kind of that anger that fueled it. So then I, yeah. we then traveled on, 
uh, and I have subsequently explored many denominations, <laughs> mm. um, you know, but so it, it, it's been a long journey. Yeah, very interesting. Well, I think that's that's kind of fascinating. I, I hear sometimes a story of people because, well, I guess we, we can get into it, but of, for I guess I, I have so many thoughts. Mm. One of them is absolutely that it's interesting that you have been through a lot of different denominations. That's kind of that shapes us in, a, in its own way. Right. Also, that you sort of started in this kind of pretty conservative, pretty conservative kind, yeah. of, kind of place, yeah. Like that also shapes you, and so it sounds like you rebelled a little bit. Um, yeah, I think you know, I think it's an interest. What's interestingly interesting to me, I guess, about it is that um, I accepted me being told you are a woman, so therefore you can't do things. But when mm. my mother who was quite good at, you know, um, working with youth. And as the oldest child of a divorce, I kind of, you know, moved into the role of protecting my mother. Uh, and so when she was being told, yeah. you're not good enough to work with the youth group, it's interesting that that, I think, maybe is what really then... So, so it wasn't so much rebellion for, for the sake of rebellion. It was anger that my mother was being told, who was, you know, this woman who was really trying to follow scripture that she was being told that she oh. couldn't serve God. And I think that was pretty pivotal for me. What, okay. In what yeah. way? Cause that, that's really fascinating in your own journey. Uh, Cause I can relate to that. Like, Hey, you know, you're, you're, you're standing up for the injustice, yeah. right? Yeah. And going, Hey, that can't be right for God. Yeah. Like what's, what's up with that? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think even now, you know, a lot of my things I'm wrestling with are, you know, do you be, do you try to legalistically follow scripture or do you stand up for injustice mm. and tolerant treatment of people, all people? And, you know, so I think probably my wrestling with that has its roots in, you know, my mother yeah. uh, being excluded and being so angry about that. So from there, like where'd that catapult you? And then where, where'd you yeah. end up? Uh, how'd you grow? Yeah. Cause you kind of gave your life to Christ as a, as a kid, but were there moments in that, right. what I call um, learning the way of Jesus, you know, like, is it, were there moments there that were kind of influential for you? Um, yeah, I've had, you know, some real, I guess, real clear, a few clear moments that I, you know, remember. Um, I of course was in a situation where um, my, my, I was starting to ask questions in college and I asked a lot of questions, but I never let myself answer them because I knew that if I ended up deciding that I believed something different than um, particularly people in my father's side of the family, that this would largely mean the end of relationships there. Um, you know, that I would in fact not be, um, it would just be very tense. Uh, and so I spent uh, a long time, as I tell my students when I talk about identity development, I spent a long time saying, I'm not really sure what I believe about this because no one gave me permission to actually make a decision. It would have been very costly for me to do that emotionally. Uh, and so I fortunately married a wonderful man who has some seminary training. Uh, and he also comes from a you know pretty conservative background, but he was at least in seminary taught to think about the context in which you know letters were written in the New Testament and these kinds of things. And uh, one day he just looked at me and he said, he said, you have to understand that there is some you know human contextualization in scripture. He says, you act like mm. the Bible fell out of the sky with verse and chapter you know delineated and Jesus's words in red. 
And I said, it didn't, you know, I mean, it, <laughs> right. it, was, it was, you know, and so, and so he really gave me permission to, in fact, uh, now that I had a safety net, I still would have a family if I, you know, asked some questions that were not answered quite the way they were in my family of origin. Uh, he, that really helped me to be a little bit braver uh, in asking some questions. Um, I think I also had a, a pretty pivotal time. Um, I grew up really believing that a good Christian is one who fights the world and you therefore you go out and you fight the world and you know uh and I viewed that sort of as my calling spiritually uh and so I did have kind of an interesting time uh, I was working in DC and I have this like moment on driving down the beltway when I realized that maybe God was not in fact calling me to go out and fight the world but to in fact teach at a Christian college and help people who had really come from a fundamentalist background uh, ask some other questions and maybe transition from seeing God as really kind of um, harsh and legalistic to someone who was more loving, you know, mm. and, and kind of kind of help people work the journey, yeah. walk the journey that I was walking and I'm still walking, but, right. <laughs> you know, but. But, but I do have, I do, that is one of my, I call that like my beltway. And, and, and I don't know why, you know, but it, I was just, I, I was driving along the beltway and I just had this realization that maybe I could have a different calling than I had thought I was going to have to have, which was going out and fighting the secular world. Oh yeah. Did you inherit that sort of Christ against culture? If I can borrow uh Niebuhr's phrase, right? Sure. Yeah. Did you inherit that or was oh, that kind of. Um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Christ against culture. Um. And, and even, you know, even more than that, it wasn't just Christ against culture. It was like our version of Christ against other Christians. Yes. You know, I mean, I, I come from a situation where you really, I mean, something had to be absolutely perfect and absolutely aligned with our beliefs in order for us to be involved. So, you know, for example, I have a relative who, um, for many years wouldn't celebrate Christmas because Christmas is, um, you know, seemingly the combination of um, the Christian church meeting a Roman uh, harvest festival. And because there's some roots in the merging of these holidays, um, you know, this person for years would give New Year's gifts, but couldn't celebrate Christmas because it wasn't perfect, you know, I mean, in the way that, that, you know, yeah. it had some bad roots. Uh, and so I very much come from a situation where if you, if, if something absolutely didn't match our theology perfectly, you had to eschew it, Yeah, you know? So, it, I mean, I think my whole early life was me against the world, you know? Which is so, it's both fascinating. And I think probably a little damaging in some ways, right? Or it's, it's restricting, right? Cause it doesn't allow you to see the possibilities. Um, yeah. I grew up in the kind of that too, where it was like, well, we're not gonna, we're not gonna, you know, be involved if we don't like it. But I still found myself even in high school intrigued by like my charismatic friends. Right. And so I would go there mm, to church and be like, yeah, let's go on over there. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. and so I've, I've maybe always had that pull and that's something that I try to do here too is, one thing I've learned in half doing the five years of the show is that proximity to people changes how you see them. Right. Absolutely. And so once you have that, yeah. it gives you a little bit of permission to go, Hey, 
maybe we can understand each other in, in a different way. I'm fascinated by your story. You, you, you just had this moment driving, which sometimes the best moments happen then, right? Like when you're just yeah. thinking and you're able to think cause you're just driving, you know, driving. Yeah. And, uh, and God just says, yeah, well, what if you didn't, right? It sounds like, like, what if, what if you could do something else? What if you could help? Is that what led you to Calvin then? Yeah. You know, Calvin actually, um, Calvin actually called me. Uh, I'm a Hope College grad and Hope and Calvin are very big rivals. So um, at, <laughs> Calvin used to be very insular uh, and only hire from their own people. Uh, and um, at that point, you know, the beginnings, this is 30 years ago, the beginnings of diversity might be reaching way across the spectrum from the, C- the Christian Reformed Church to the Reformed Church in America. <laughs> that was like a brave thing to do. Um, but Calvin has been uh, uh, absolutely wonderful fit for me because Calvin, I would say, is a place where they really do take scripture seriously, which, you know, is my tradition is that, you know, if if you can't find, I mean, if it's against scripture, you absolutely need to reject this. But at the same time, really um, very concerned with mainstream science. And so we're going to wrestle with these questions. And and so Calvin gave me a way to really remain faithful to scripture Mm. on a whole lot of issues, but have a different interpretation of the scripture than the way I was raised. And so I really am a person who can't desert scripture, you know, unless Mm. I can understand it in a different way. So I mean, obviously I'm keeping it. I just may be interpreting it maybe differently. Um, maybe we, maybe this was written to a certain, yeah. you know, a certain person, not to all of us. Maybe this is, you know, uh, this is anyway. Anyway, so yeah. So well, Calvin, Calvin is just Calvin. Basically, we would say our theme is integration of faith and learning. And so for me, that was absolutely. It, it has continues to be a wonderful place for me because I'm just. It helps me do that. I love that. So, where did you get permission to do that? For going from your very, very conservative background to to go. Wait, yeah. what if I what if I change my hermeneutic? Right, like that's yeah. What if I kind of a, kind of a big shift? Where'd that happen? Um. Well, I think. I mean, it started in many ways with my husband kind of encouraging mm-hmm. me to say, think about things a little bit more broadly than you have, you know, uh, thought about them growing up. Um, and then I would say at Calvin, I'm, you know, as a cal- professor at Calvin, I'm required to give students assignments where they uh, take and address issues from both the psych and a scientific, or from a psychology, psychological science and a theological vantage. Um, and if you're going to give students those assignments, you're going to have to wrestle with them yourself. Uh, and so um, I think just really slowly over time, but I would say it has been a 30 year process. And, you know, even I would even say the last couple election cycles <laughs> have really pushed me to, to say, OK. Yeah, I relate to that. I've often called Donald Trump a he's like he just kind of divided he he made some things clear, right? He just kind of opened some things up. And so like, look, I've been a conservative my entire life, but I'm also going, I don't know if, and I said, I don't think you're alone. I think there's a lot of us who, who yeah. because of that had to ask some questions, um, you know, about how committed are, am I to my politics over yeah. my faith? And yeah. is my faith, is Jesus asking me to do something different? 
than what yeah. my politics had been. Man, I remember one time saying to somebody, I don't know how you can be a Christian and be a Democrat, right? Like, oh, now I look at that and go, good grief, right? Yeah, but, I, yeah. <laughs> I said the same yeah. thing. <laughs> but it was in, 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 at a certain stage of maturity, that makes sense, right? But um, yeah. it's like, oh, okay. And so now we have to think about it a little bit more, maybe more nuanced. Um, so that, that, but that can definitely change, right? Change your, change your, cause you right. to rethink some things. Right. Right. Ironically, I had a friend in graduate school who said, I always growing up, grow, grew up asking, how could you be a Republican and be a Christian? <laughs> because, because Jesus was kind to the poor, you know, and, and I was, and, you know, so that would really surprise me. Oh, well, you mean you, you God is not a Republican, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and so I think, even though I've been asking these questions for a long time, you know, I think for many of us, I talked to other friends of mine, the last couple election cycles have really just required us to think about the labels we use for ourselves and what do we believe and you know how are we going to address some of these questions so yeah i i think yeah the, the last couple election cycles were really hard on me as a christian but at the same time they were incredibly ultimately very freeing because i realized that i couldn't have everything i believed in in one candidate and so therefore i had to yeah. Make some choice. Sure. And there, you know? and there certainly is that aspect yeah. as well. How'd you get into psychology? So how did you start to go? That's something I want to study. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think at the time I was largely, mm-hmm. well, I've always liked psychology, but certainly when I went to graduate school, I went to do divorce research. And I think I was just trying to figure out my own childhood uh, myself. And so it was fairly self-seeking in that sense. Uh, and in some ways, it has been that I transitioned for a while. Then after I adopted a child from a Russian orphanage, I transitioned to doing some adoption research. And so in many ways, I've, psychology is just a way to help you yeah, figure yeah. out your own issues in your own life. Um, but I, you know, so I just I've always kind of gravitated towards it, I think, because I have a very complicated life. But, but I don't I'm not really interested in therapy. I'm, I'm much more interested in asking research questions and trying to provide, you know, explanations for some things. Trying to figure out the answers. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to figure out the answers. <laughs> I get it. I get it. That is fascinating. Here's the thing. I don't think I think all disciplines are like that, but I think the only the psych majors are honest about it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's probably true. Uh, cause I went, you know, like I said, one of my questions was how do we grow in Christ? And that took me to college and that took me to seminary. And that's yeah. it. Like I was trying to figure out those questions that my little church didn't have answers to. Right. So yeah. I, think that, I think that probably is the case. Interesting. Um, okay. So how did you, well, I'm, I'm going to ask this question and then we'll go, it will move a little bit into the book. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you had some tough times growing up. Had, did you have a dark night of the soul or have you had a season that was like, maybe it was the election. I don't, you can say that whatever you want, but, but was there a season where you felt like God was far away or sometimes they call it the spiritual desert. You can call it whatever you want, but does that. Um, well, I don't really want to sound pathetic, but <laughs> um, I guess in some ways the, God that I knew for most of my life has always been far away, if that's yeah fair to say. Um, I mean, emotionally, I mean, God has was very much a presence uh, in uh, 
particularly, and I don't mean to describe my whole childhood as, as bad. Well, you know, my, my mother uh, gave me some wonderful times with the youth group she eventually got to work with and those sure. kinds of things. Um, but, you know, as a psychologist, for example, one of the things I lecture on is how our earliest, or how, how our views of God are often influenced by our very earliest experiences with our parents. Uh, and so I guess I have just pretty much always viewed God as a rule giver who you had to follow. And I, and I never really, really rebelled. I mean, I know that God loves me, but mostly God is a person who is given for me, given some rules that I need to follow, you know, until very, very recently where I really have been able to transition to seeing God as more loving than a rule giver. So I don't know. Do you call that a desert if it's the first 40 years of your life or do yeah. you say, maybe I, maybe I just came out of that to, you know, to, um, yeah, I don't know. So, so it's kind of, I guess I wouldn't say I had a dark night. I, I mean, I really, yeah. um, a, a lot of, um, dark times. Well, I so. see, I find that really interesting. And I think that that is, because for some people it is a season. It is a one moment, one thing, somebody dies, they have an illness, whatever it is. Right. And, and sometimes it's just a different ex experience. And so I love hearing a different perspective on that because it, yeah. it, it is, you know, friends that maybe that's your experience, right? Like it maybe, maybe your experience is God was always this far away rule giver. And the invitation to you is, uh, he's maybe he wants to be close because he is both what, what a transcendent and imminent, right? Yep. He is both right. high and lifted up and also incredibly close, um, which is pretty right. cool. sounds like you've been working on the second part more lately. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I think for me, I just keep coming back to instead of maybe saying, oh, here's a specific rule in scripture. I keep coming back to the two greatest commandments. You love mm -hmm. God and then you love your neighbor. And viewing that as being more important than all of the more um, discrete, specific rules, um, just yep. loving one's neighbor to me, that has in, of course, then made God seem more loving, I guess, for me as well. Just embracing yeah. this God okay, so, of more compassion uh, has been, yes. a, you know, a, a more recent spiritual development for me. And I'm not throwing out all of scripture. I want to be very clear of that. You know, my, 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 one of my relatives likes to say, oh, if you, if you, you know, you're, you're just throwing out the scripture you don't like. And I say, no, I'm, I'm trying to prioritize every Christian prioritizes different emphases in scripture. And so I'm going to prioritize uh, what Jesus says is the greatest, you know, the, the two greatest commandments. Uh, so I'm using those to, you know, as more important than some of the other ones, but I'm certainly not throwing out any of scripture. Right. Well, we're back there to we that. Are. Right. Where am I going to start? Where, where am I, how am I going to understand what scripture is telling me, right. which I think is super important. I also love the idea. I think there's something here and you're, you're more of the developmental person. So I'll, I'll defer to you. Maybe this can lead us into, into mm -hmm. some more of your research, but there's something too, as you, as you grow, you need less and less of the come home at 11, right? Or the, the kind of really specific 
instructions. Make sure you take care of your right. dishes, whatever it is, right? right? You need because you because you can own right. those things. And so I think it's true spiritually as well. We need less of the do this, don't do that, and more of the, hey, this is what we're about. Kind of a kind of a broader thing that actually permeates everything we do as well. Do you find that to be true? Um, I do. I find that that I need, you know, the central orienting uh, theme, I guess, of love. And then then the trick is figuring out how oh. you love. And sometimes sometimes you do love by providing boundaries and requiring people to stay with them. Sometimes that is the most loving thing to do. But other times um, I often think also about Jesus, you know, meeting the woman in adultery. And first he shows her love. And then he says, go yep. sin. No, I'm sorry, I should say go sin. He says, stop sinning. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> right, and, right. But, but interestingly, he, he doesn't follow her home to check up on her. At least that's that presented in scripture. I mean, I mean the, the main point of the passage is that he meets her needs where she is. He reaches out to her and shows her love. And then I would like to think that if she was in circumstances that permitted her to not continuing to engage in adultery, that having had that experience, that then she, in fact, you know, moved closer to the person that Christ wanted her to be. But, but, it's, but it's this organizing starting point of he connects with her first. And yes. I think that's kind of, that's where I'm trying to live my life now. Yes. It's always been fascinating to me as well that, um, that sin is really not the issue there. I mean, it's what got him there, but it's not really the issue. He's, he's way more concerned about the social dynamics and how you know, the, right. the, the hypocrisy of like wanting to stone this woman when we're all kind of, you know, right. we're not. And when, when none of the men were being stoned and we presume it takes two. Somebody, yeah, somebody else was there, right? <laughs> Presumably. But so, yeah, super fascinating to me. Okay. So, but the whole thing with, with sin, I know that you, you write about original sin a little bit as one of those questions in the person in psychology and Christianity. So, I'd love to dive into that because I wrestle here a lot um, because I don't, I'm kind of like you, I'm not throwing out the whole Bible. I don't want to say that sin doesn't exist or that's unimportant, but I'm not quite sure it's as important as I've been told. Right? I feel like, I feel like it's, it's overcomable but from God's perspective, not un, not, not this huge, not as big of an obstacle as it, as it seems certainly important, but anyway, so I'm interested. What do you tell us about kind of what you, wrote about that. Sure. Okay. Well, this will take a little bit of unpacking. I'm okay. going to go a little theological and scientific on you. Great. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so can I give you just a little history of original sin? I would Be- love that. That'd you would be love awesome. that. <laughs> I, I'm serious. Like I love diving into these things. That'd be great. One of the questions I was bumping up against as a psychologist who is also very concerned with scripture and theological tradition was the question of how we got, you might say, original sin. Okay, so if you think about the fact that um, we're created good in Genesis 1, evil is first presented in the form of a serpent, of something outside of us, and then somehow this thing outside of us seemingly got inside of us, is what I had, you know, always been taught. Um, And so as a psychologist, I began saying, well, how would that work? You know, in in Christianity, we often talk about uh, a changed nature or a sinful nature. 
Uh, and in psychological science, we're going to define nature as what you get in your genes. So this then, of course, presents a little bit of a problem. Uh, the genes that we have are fixed from birth. Otherwise, the crime shows wouldn't work. You know, it, it, it matters <laughs> that your genes that you had when you were young are the same genetic code you have as you're older. Okay. So, you know, you're kind of left with this kind of question of, okay, so someone took a bite of fruit and then their DNA changed. This doesn't make any sense at all. So um, how, how did this external evil get inside of us so that it is now part of us, right? So this kind of question drove me a bit to dig deeper into original sin. So um, I began looking at a lot of uh, theologians early on. Uh, and so one theologian that I find kind of quite interesting uh, is a guy named Irenaeus, who is kind of, um, th you might say, three generations from Jesus. So Jesus had the disciple John John had a disciple named Polycarp. Polycarp had a disciple named Irenaeus. So often people think of Irenaeus's writings as um, close to, you know, what the original apostles would be thinking. Yeah. Okay. Is he considered one of the church fathers? Um, he is, although yeah. he certainly got trumped by Augustine. So <laughs> true, but he's up. He's you know, in. He's in that category. Yeah, he would be in that category. But, but yeah. it's helpful for you to tell us that because most of my most of our listeners here probably don't know all that right. kind of early church history. So that's right, good. that early church history. So what's super interesting about Irenaeus is that Irenaeus apparently, like many of the early church, early Christians, you know, shortly around the time of Jesus. I actually thought that God created humans with potential that could then kind of, we could use towards good or bad. Um, and that in fact, Adam and Eve were created as children uh, or at least prepubescent. And because in fact, then we have this other psychological question of how could adults not know good from evil? This is a little bit complicated, you know, how do you, right. how do you because as a developmentalist, I talk about when children develop a conscience and these kinds of things, you know, and, and what would it be to be an adult who couldn't discern good from evil? Uh, so he actually uh, presented a little bit different view. He was one of the first people to systemize the study of sin, you might say. Uh, and he believed that uh, we didn't really absorb something from the outside, but rather we had potential built in. And we then had to, so Irenaeus actually believed that um, basically God knew we were going to sin. We would need to sin in order to learn to discern good from evil and then fully image God. Um, and so Ooh. the plan was to send Christ right from the beginning. Uh, so it's it's not, so Irenaeus's view is not so much this, I'm absorbing something from the outside. It's I am simply directing my image of God kinds of qualities towards bad, you know, bad, evil kinds of things. Okay. Uh, so he was kind of pretty important. Uh, but then we have Augustine and Augustine comes in and Augustine um, basically is saying, well, we baptize for the remission of sins and we baptize infants at that time in history, you know, and now in many traditions, yep. my own now. Um, and so um, so it must mean that infants have some sort of sin that is not an action sin because they haven't done anything yet. They have something that he then begins more formally to call original sin. Okay. Uh, and so, but Augustine had a lot of, obviously has a very pre-scientific worldview. And he believes, for example, that um, sin comes through the father's sperm, not from the mother. 
and so this is why Jesus had no sin because he was born of Mary, but sin does not get passed through the mother, you know? And so he had some obviously interesting ideas. And to me, it was quite interesting that a person who really has scientific ideas that are, we clearly now know not to be correct has nonetheless been so pervasive <laughs> in, you know, completely um, directing at least Western theology, less so Orthodox Christianity, and to some degree less uh, Catholic than Protestants. But, you know, we then end up, end up with people like Calvin and um, the Reformers really saying, okay, there's this, you know, thing that kind of genetically got inside of us and just pervades every aspect of who we are, um, which is just really kind of hard for me to wrap my head around scientifically, like how did something outside of us get inside of us? Uh, you know, so, so in the book, I right. do sort of review some of these uh, ideas about, you know, about original. And for me, it was just super helpful to realize that Catholics and Orthodox don't see um, humans as evil as Protestants do, you know? And I was like, wow, right. uh, Catholics are the majority of Christians in the world. And so I don't, necessarily have to, as a Christian, have to view people as negatively as John Calvin portrayed them and Martin Luther even maybe more, you know. Uh, so, so yeah, so those are some yeah. kinds of questions I ask in the book. Um, and, and I, I think, you know, at the risk of sounding heretical, I have some problems with Augustine's portrayal. Uh, but but I wasn't, oh, you know, I was really scared yeah. to ask those kinds of questions until recently. I was very actually excited to come across, for example, uh, some writings by Mark Mann, who is at Point Loma, which is also like a more conservative, you know, college. Uh, and he said, well, some of our psychological theories actually fit a little better with Irenaeus's view. And actually, um, his his thought is that actually Irenaeus's view fits pretty well with scripture that, you know, we, in fact, I mean, the main, really the main transition that's discussed in Genesis chapter three is we, the human species didn't know good and evil. And now we know good and evil, you know, it doesn't say we made yeah. a 180 degree turn from being perfect to being primarily evil. You know, I mean, those are things that, you know, some New Testament, you know, theology has sort of been used to interpret the early Genesis passages. But I mean, the only thing really said in Genesis three is that we developed a conscience and we became, you know, capable of recognizing sin. Right. And apparently this meant we couldn't be in the garden anymore. There was some sort of, we, we add a lot oh, yeah. of separation. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I of all well. people, I'm not going to tell you that we're not sinners. We're absolutely sinners. And, and our relationship with God right. is very much strained. <laughs> right. So we're back a little bit to that developmental stuff because I think, of you know, children can only have one thing be true, yeah. right? It's either true or not. But as you get older, you can go, oh, th it is true that we're sinful and it is true that we're yeah. loved by God. Like those yeah, two yeah. things can be exactly. true at the same time without, without having. And so we have to nuance that yeah. a little bit, I think, as, as well. Really interesting. So, I mean, at the risk of like going a whole <laughs> lot of other directions, once you are going, you know, just going too theological, but once you go, once you go, okay if you start to adjust original sin, does that change the gospel at all? Does it change like what Christ's um, work does? I don't, there... yeah, some people say that, but I don't think I have to be 
100% evil to need salvation. I think I, I can be 25% yeah, yeah, right. evil and still need salvation. You know, I mean, I think, I mean, I think you certainly can have a view where people were created to be in relationship with God as we cognitively gain the capacity to disobey and break that relationship with God. We need Christ to bring us back to God. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't really see how that writes out Christ. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I love that. Which, but that's kind of the argument that gets made sometimes that I, that I end up hearing when I question the it is. original sin. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, so I want to ask uh, some other things, like what, what else is it? Cause I'm, I'm really fascinated by this idea of the person. So one of the things that you'll hear throughout these episodes is I just feel like we don't even American evangelicalism, I make that distinction. Mm-hmm. Certainly that I grew up in and have been steeped in and educated in doesn't take the whole person, um, the whole human person seriously in terms of we, we, uh, you know, tend to, we're either sort of pseudo Gnostic and we don't know it that we're, the, you know, the spiritual yeah. is good and the physical is bad. Um, or we just don't care about anything that's not the gospel, quote unquote, uh, that that we don't actually care about the psychology of a human being and how that integrates with our faith. So I'm interested that you wrote about that. Where, like, what did you find, or what 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 do you what do you think is kind of the things that we'd really benefit from knowing? Well, I mean, thing I think it helps that my my focus is on child development, mm-hmm. and so for me. Um, I have to explain to students often that we're not born with an abstract idea of God. I mean, as babies, our focus is on the things that we can see in the physical world. Uh, And so the things in the physical world and the way that we're treated very much prepare us to perceive God in different ways once we then have the sophistication to have a concept of an abstract entity. Okay. And so, you mean, often I'll get student papers who will say, well, you know, God is spiritual. I'm like, yes, God is spiritual, but we make sense of it in terms of physical terms. You know, Jesus, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He uses a very physical analogy because uh, most of us think more clearly in the physical world. And certainly young children, you know, only live with the physical world. And so I think that we really can't be separating the world into spiritual and physical because developmentally for the child, you know, the the physical completely sets the foundation and orients us towards saying, okay, um, God is primarily loving or God is, you know, primarily um, a rule giver and frustrated with me. And so one of the chapters in the book is actually on attachment theory. And in this chapter, I talk about how, um, basically our, the way that our parents treat us cause us to view ourselves as either worthy of love or not worthy of love. So if my parents are, uh, if my parents delight in me, I see myself as a person worthy of love. And then I have a much easier time believing that God could love me than if my parents were, you know, too 
coked out on drugs to get off the couch to take care of me. It's going to be very, you can tell me that God loves me, but it's going to be very difficult for me to feel like God loves me um, because my own physical parents didn't love me enough to take care of me, you know? And so, so over time as a developmental psychologist, I've had to say, you know, you got to think about both of these perspectives because the physical sets the foundation for your whole understanding of the spiritual and the way that you interact with the spiritual. Yes. And I think Jesus proves that, right? Like he, like God understands that to the point that he became a a human person. I think, I think, Absolutely. That's a great, uh, that's a great example. Yes. You know, we, we can't understand God unless he comes into, you know, the physical form for us to deal with him as a, as a physical. Yes. One of my, so when I, when I finished, I have an MDiv and so I finished basically this paper and about all of our theology. And when I got to revelation, I was surprised that when we, when we talk about who, how we know who God is, Jesus is actually, I would thought it'd be scripture, right? It's actually Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as it says in Colossians. He is the primary way that we know who God is. And then, so once once I had that little bit of shift, then that opens up a whole bunch of other little trap doors that you have to work yeah. through. But but kind of important, and it does it did shape my um my hermeneutic, right? It changed the way that I that I looked at scripture, even which uh, kind of back to what you were saying. Let's filter everything through what Jesus said rather than. What Jesus said. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So fascinating. Um, I really could probably noodle on this for a long, long time, Marjorie. <laughs> I, I appreciate you being here to share a little bit with us. The book, again, is called The Person in Psychology and Christianity, a faith-based critique of five theories of social development. You can get it. Uh, I would say in the show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com or at Amazon or at IVP. Um Marjorie, is there, so we've covered a lot of, a lot of ground, but is there there anything else you want to leave us with? You don't need to compartmentalize your faith in your science. I think that um, there are a lot of Christians wrestling with hard questions of science and um, you can still be a Christian. And and, and I say this because I mean, literally I had a student, um, who had come from a background quite like mine. Um, and she came to Calvin and, you know, and I encounter her, I counter many other people who simply have art, you know, who have been told you must believe in literal seven day creation. You must believe in, you know, original sin as Augustine presented it. Um, you must believe these certain things and are just really kind of scared to ask the scientific questions. And so I guess if I were to say something, um, to maybe your audience, I would say there's all kinds of Christians who accept many aspects of mainstream science, you know, and you don't have to be scared of those things. It, it does it does change your worldview, but it doesn't necessarily cause you to throw out Christianity. It's it's just a little bit different is, <laughs> form of Christianity. Absolutely. <laughs> and I would also add. Don't confine yourself to your specific denomination, because for me, I have learned so much by reading um, Catholic approaches and Orthodox approaches. And I I think it would just be pompous of me to say that my little tradition, which is numerically fairly small, um, has all the right answers. Yes. (laughs) Well, okay. Yes. You went back to Irenaeus, which I find so fascinating, right? To go to... (laughs) What if, what if we prioritize a different church father 
uh, well, maybe we end yeah. up someplace different. I love it. I may have to go. Uh, I don't think I have any of him, but I may have to run yeah, over to the library. You know, and I want to be clear. Um, you know, these are things I'm still wrestling totally. with. I, you know, but but I'm just saying, there are so many Christians who, in fact, are part of God's big kingdom, who, in fact, view things somewhat differently than I was raised, and I owe it to these traditions to you know consider them. Hundred um, percent. What what so? Yeah. What if your faith and science what if your faith and other traditions aren't in conflict friends like that's that's the question marjorie thanks for being here i appreciate you very welcome very good thanks nice to meet you eric